0: Dark Cast Network. Out of the shadows comes the best of indie podcasts. Poison candy myths are urban legends of malevolent strangers intentionally hiding drugs, poisons, or other sharp objects such as razor blades or needles or even broken glass and candy and distributing the candy in order to harm random children, especially during Halloween trick-or-treating. These stories serve as a modern cautionary tale to children and parents and repeat two themes that are common in urban legends. Danger to children and contamination of food. No cases of strangers killing or permanently injuring children this way has ever been proven. Notice I said strangers. Tonight's tale has the death of an eight-year-old boy at the hands of his own father he has been dubbed the real life candy man. My name is DJ, and this is the Mythical True Crime Podcast. <laughs> The deaths of five children were initially blamed on strangers poisoning them. However, all of these claims were later proven false upon investigations. Here's a small list of cases I uncovered that had misattributed poison deaths. In 2001, a four-year-old girl in British Columbia, Vancouver, died while eating some Halloween candy. However, there was no evidence of poison candy and she actually just died of strep infection. In 1990, a seven-year-old girl in Santa Monica, California, died while trick-or-treating. Early press reports blamed poison candy. However, despite her parents telling police that she had previously been diagnosed with serious medical conditions, such as an enlarged heart, that was later proven to be the actual cause of death. In 1978, a two-year-old boy from Flint, Michigan, died while eating Halloween candy. However, toxicology tests showed that there was no evidence to the poisoning, and his death was determined to be that of natural causes. In 1970, a five-year-old boy from the Detroit area died after finding and eating some of his uncle's heroin. Her family attempted to protect the uncle by claiming that the drug had been sprinkled into the children's Halloween candy. Now, despite these claims of poison candy eventually being proved false, news media outlets all over the country promote the story continuously throughout the 1980s and 90s, with local news stations featuring frequent coverage. During this time, cases of poisonings were repeatedly reported based on unsubstantiated claims, or before a full investigation could be completed and often never followed up on. This one-sided coverage contributed to the overall panic and caused rival media outlets to issue reports of candy tampering as well. Claims that have been candy been tampered with actually go as far back as the Industrial Revolution, when food production moved out of the home and the local area and it was made in familiar ways by known and trusted people to strangers using unknown ingredients and unfamiliar machines and processes. Doctors publicly claimed that they were treating children poisoned by candy every day. If a child became ill and had eaten candy, the candy was widely assumed to be the cause. However, no cases of these illnesses or death were ever substantiated. It wasn't really until an author named Joel Best, a sociologist at the University of Delaware, who specializes in the scholarly of studying candy tampering legends. He collected newspaper reports from 1958 to 1983 to search for evidence of candy tampering. Fewer than 90 instances might have qualified for actual candy tampering. However, none of the cases does he attribute to random attempts to harm children on Halloween. Instead, most cases were attempts by adults to gain financial compensation, like Tonight's Tale, or far more commonly, a children trying to get attention. Best found, that five children's deaths that were initially thought by local authorities to be caused by homicidal strangers were actually not sustained by investigations. Fabrications by children are particularly common. Children sometimes copy or act out stories about tampered candy that they overhear, and also by adding pins to or pouring household cleaners into their own candy and then reporting how that they're unsafe to their parents. In these instances, children have not been harmed. They know that their dangerous items are present, and then it's unsafe to eat the candy. Far more prevalent during the same period were reports of vandalism, racist incidents, and children being injured in pedestrian vehicle collisions on Halloween, more so than tampering or poisonings. Tonight's story is far more sinister than anything you could really find on Halloween. It's about a man named Ronald Clark O'Brien. Now, Ronald lived with his wife, uh, Danine in Deer Park, Texas, with their son Timothy and daughter Elizabeth. O'Brien worked as an optrician at the Texas State Optical in Sharpstown, Houston. He was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church, where he sang in a choir and ran a local bus program. On Halloween, 1974, O'Brien took his two children trick-or-treating in Pasadena, Texas, neighborhoods. O'Brien's neighbor and his two children accompanied them. After visiting a home where the occupant failed to answer the door, The children grew impatient and ran ahead to the next home while O'Brien stayed behind. He eventually caught up with the group and produced five 21-inch pixie sticks, which he would later claim that he had been given from the occupant of the house that had not answered the door. At the end of the evening, O'Brien gave each of his neighbors' two children a pixie stick and one each to Timothy and Elizabeth. Upon returning home, O'Brien gave the fifth pixie stick to his 10-year-old boy, whom he recognized from his church. Before bed, Timothy asked to eat some of his candy that he collected. According to Ronald, he chose the pixie stick. Timothy had trouble getting the powdered candy out of the straw, so O'Brien helped loosen the powder out. After tasting the candy, Timothy complained that it tasted bitter. O'Brien then gave his son Kool-Aid to wash the taste away. Timothy immediately began to complain that his stomach hurt, ran to the bathroom and began vomiting and convulsing. O'Brien later claimed that he held Timothy while he was vomiting, and the child went limp in his arms. Timothy O'Brien died en route to the hospital, less than an hour after consuming the candy. Timothy's death from poisoned Halloween candy raised fear in the community. Numerous parents in Deer Park and the surrounding area turned their candy in to the local police that their children had got from trick-or-treating, fearing it had been laced with this poison. The police did not initially suspect O'Brien of any wrongdoing until Timothy's autopsy revealed that the pixie stick he had consumed was laced with a fatal dose of potassium cyanide. Four of the five pixie sticks O'Brien claimed to have received were recovered by authorities from the other children none of whom had consumed the candy. The parents of the fifth child became hysterical when they could not locate the candy after being notified by the police. Parents rushed upstairs to find their son asleep, holding the unconsumed candy in his hands. The boy had been unable to open the staples that sealed the wrapper shut. All five of the pixie sticks had been opened, with a two- Top two inches refilled with cyanide powder and resealed with the staple. According to a pathologist who tested the pixie sticks, the candy consumed by Timothy contained enough cyanide to kill two adult men, while the other four candies contained enough to kill three to four adults. O'Brien initially told police that he couldn't remember what house he got the pixie sticks from. Police became suspicious because O'Brien and his neighbor had only taken their kids to homes on two streets because it was raining. Their suspicions increased after learning that none of the homes they visited gave out pixie sticks. After walking the neighborhood with police three times, O'Brien led them to the home where no one had answered the door before. O'Brien claimed that he went back there after catching up with the group. He said the owner of the home did not turn any lights on, but opened the door but a crack and handed him five pixie sticks. He claimed that he'd only seen the man's arm, which he described as hairy. The home was owned by a man named Courtney Melvin. Melvin was an air traffic control operator at the William P. Hobby Airport, and he didn't get home from work until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. Police ruled out Melvin as a suspect when over 200 people confirmed that he had been at work all night. As the investigation progressed, police learned that Ronald O'Brien was over $100,000 in debt, equivalent to about $550,000 today, and had a history of being unable to hold a job. In the 10 years preceding the crime, O'Brien held 21 jobs. At the time of his arrest, he was suspected of theft at the job he was working at the Texas State Optical, in which he was close to being fired from. His car was about to be repossessed, he had defaulted on several bank loans, and the family home had been foreclosed on. Police discovered that O'Brien had taken out life insurance policies on all of his children months preceding Timothy's death. In January 1974, He had taken out a $10,000, equivalent to $54,946 in today's money, a $10,000 life insurance policy on both of his children. One month before Timothy's death, O'Brien took out an additional $20,000 in policies again on both of his children, despite the objections of the life insurance agency. And in the days preceding Timothy's death, O'Brien had taken out yet another $20,000 policy on each child. The various policies totaled to approximately $60,000. O'Brien's wife maintained she did not know anything about insurance policies on her children's lives. The police had also learned that on the morning of Timothy's death, O'Brien had called his insurance company, inquiring about collecting the policies he had taken out on his son. After learning O'Brien had visited a chemical supply store in Houston to buy cyanide shortly before Halloween 1974, they found out he later left without purchasing anything when he learned that the smallest amount available to purchase was five pounds. Police began to suspect that Ronald O'Brien had laced the candies himself with poison in an effort to kill his children to collect the life insurance policies. They believed he gave the other children poison candy in an effort to cover up his despicable crime. Police repeatedly questioned O'Brien, but he maintained his innocence. After this quick message, we'll be right back. If this is your first time tuning in, I encourage you to subscribe to the show so you can hear all the other episodes, as well as what we have coming up in the next few weeks. Although police never discovered when or where O'Brien had bought the poison, he was arrested for Timothy's murder on November 5th, 1974. He was indicted on one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. O'Brien entered a plea of not guilty to all five counts. O'Brien's trial began in Houston, May 5, 1975, during which a chemist who was acquainted with O'Brien testified that in the summer of 1973, O'Brien had contacted him about asking about cyanide and how much it would take to be fatal. Chemical supply salesman also testified at the trial that O'Brien had asked him how to purchase cyanide. Friends and co-workers testified in the months before of Timothy's death, O'Brien had showed a unnatural interest in cyanide and spoke about how much it would take to kill a person. O'Brien's sister in law and brother in law both testified on the day of Timothy's funeral that they heard Ronald as he spoke using some of the money from Timothy's insurance policy, to take a long vacation and to buy other items. As well, his wife rejected the claim that Timothy chose the Pixie Sticks, stating at the trial that O'Brien had, in fact, forced him to choose the sticks themselves. O'Brien continued to maintain his innocence. His defense mainly drew upon the decades-old urban legend concerned of mad poisoner who hands out candy on Halloween laced with poison and uh, needles and candy apples that had razor blades in them, so on and so forth. These stories have persisted, despite the fact that there's zero documentation of any instances of strangers poisoning Halloween candy. The case and subsequent trial garnered national attention, and the press-dubbed Ronald O'Brien The Candyman. On June 3rd, 1975, a jury took 46 minutes to find O'Brien guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. The jury then took another 71 minutes to sentence him to death by electrocution. Shortly after he was convicted, his wife filed divorce, She later remarried, and her new husband adopted their daughter, Elizabeth. I have the actual scan of the newspaper clipping from June 4th, 1975. I'm going to link it in the description below. O'Brien found guilty of the Halloween murder. This is the article reads, If the prosecution has its way... Ronald Clark O'Brien will die in the electric chair for murdering his eight-year-old son with cyanide-laced Halloween candy. A 10-man, two-women jury Tuesday took 46 minutes to decide O'Brien, who, one prosecutor said, sacrificed his son to the altar of greed, killed Timothy O'Brien in an effort to collect $31,000 in life insurance. Prosecutor Mike Hinton... Ask that the jury today give O'Brien death in the electric chair. The only other verdict the jury can return is life imprisonment for the capital murder conviction. Hinton paced the floor during the closing arguments Tuesday, staring at the jury and turned to lean across the prosecutor's table and point his finger at O'Brien. He ought to be damned for what he did, Hinton said. Nobody has anything to gain but this defendant, I don't want you to forget one minute he wanted to take those other kids with him, too. O'Brien was also charged with the attempted capital murder of his daughter, Elizabeth Lane, five, and two other children for friends of the church he went. They also went trick-or-treating with O'Brien's children. They had also received Pixie sticks candy containing cyanide but did not eat them. Timothy died less than an hour after his father helped him pour the sugar candy into his mouth and gave him a soft drink to wash it down. 21-inch pixie stick had been opened, and the top two inches refilled with potassium cyanide granules. Assistant District Attorney Vic Driscoll told the jury, O'Brien lied when he said that he didn't know where he got the poison sticks that night on Halloween. This man has a bad reputation for truth and veracity, Driscoll said. His whole life is a lie. He used it as church, he used it on his friends, and he used it in the community and his family. And worst of all, he has used his own son, not as Abraham did. He sacrificed his son into the altar of greed. At the time, men sentenced to death under Texas law were confined to Ellis uh, 1 unit near Huntsville, Texas. According to Reverend Carol Pickett, former chaplain who worked at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, O'Brien was shunned and despised by his fellow death row inmates for killing his child and was absolutely friendless. The inmates reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on O'Brien's execution date to express their hatred for him. O'Brien's first execution date was set for August 8, 1980. His attorney successfully petitioned for a stay of execution. A second date was scheduled for May 25, 1982. That date was also postponed. Judge Michael McStampton scheduled a third execution date for October 31, 1982, the eighth anniversary of the crime, and he offered to personally drive O'Brien to the death chamber himself. It was, was to have been the first time Texas executed an inmate by lethal injection. The Supreme Court, however, had other plans and delayed the date yet again to give O'Brien a chance to pursue an appeal to seek a new trial. A fourth date was scheduled for March 31, 1984. O'Brien's lawyer then sought a fourth stay on the basis that the lethal injection was new and its cruel and unusual punishment. March 28th, federal judge rejected the inquest. And on March 31st, 1984, shortly after midnight, Richard Clark O'Brien was executed by a lethal injection at the Huntsville unit. His last meal consisted of T-bone steak, medium to well done, French fries with ketchup, whole corn kernel, peas, lettuce and tomato salad with egg, French dressing on the side, Iced tea with some sweetener, saltine crackers, Boston cream pie, and some baked rolls. O'Brien's last words were quite lengthy. They were, quote, What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way of my death. Also, to anyone I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask for your forgiveness. Just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way, and I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all, and for us to respectfully as human beings, to my loved ones I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts I love you, one and all. God bless you all, and may God's best blessings be always yours. Ronald C. O'Brien. P.S. During my time here, I've been treated well by the TDC personnel. During the execution, a crowd of over 300 demonstrators. Gathered outside the prison, cheering, while some yelled, Trick or treat. Others showered anti death penalty demonstrators with candy. Ronald O'Brien is buried at Forest Park East Cemetery in Webster, Texas. Timothy is buried at Forest Park Lawndale Cemetery in Houston. A newspaper clipping from the Desert News reads, Lethal injection ends life of Texas' dad, who killed his eight-year-old son with cyanide. O'Brien, 39, was executed at 12.48 a.m. CST for the Halloween night, 1974, death of his son Timothy. In a handwritten will, O'Brien left a meager belongings to Markham Duff Smith, a death row inmate from Houston, convicted of killing his adoptive mother. He also willed his eyes for medical research. He became the 16th man executed in the United States since 1977 and the 4th by lethal injection. It marked the 3rd execution by injection over the past 15 months in Texas. O'Brien, portrayed at his trial as a compulsive liar, always insisted he was innocent. But a jury deliberated only 46 minutes before convicting him. Prosecutor said O'Brien used cyanide to spike five giant pixie sticks, 21-inch plastic tubes filled with powdered confections in 1974. And we know the rest. What are your thoughts on this? Are you a Halloween fan? Do you believe in the uh, hocus pocus of it all with people uh, spiking candy and trying to harm children? I can understand, due to fears, like a lot of parents and communities restrict trick-or-treating. In fact, they've even developed alternative safe events, such as trunk or treat at uh, a lot of Christian churches. And heck, even uh, collectively, a lot of people fear, uh, and they have safe trick-or-treating areas and local, uh, local malls, for example, around here. Uh, this story also promoted the sale of individually wrapped, named-brand candies. and discouraged people from giving homemade treats to children. I remember when I was a kid, we used to get uh, popcorn balls that were handmade. Yeah, my great-grandmother used to give us that with like a little bag of a bunch of little candies. It was good. It was nice. I mean, this myth has also distracted many parents of what the real primary safety risk on Halloween is, which is kids getting killed by cars. Uh, I was looking up statistics, actually. In the United States, uh, young children ages 4 to 8, 10 times more likely to get killed by a car on Halloween than any other day of the year. Children of all ages, from 0 to 17, are three times more likely to get killed by a vehicle on Halloween than during the rest of the year. So, if there's any lesson to be learned from here, it's wear reflectives, carry a flashlight, go to only neighborhoods you know, and don't eat your candy until your parents have time to collect tax. I mean, to, of course, go through it and inspect it. I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. If you liked tonight's episode and consider subscribing, uh, it'd be much appreciated. It'll help me continue to make these episodes. Also, don't forget to leave a comment and uh, subscribe to my social media. Mythical True Crime is on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. I check those daily, and I do respond fairly quickly. And if you have any ideas for a future episode or something I might have missed, please reach out. Drop me a line. Again, thank you very much for listening. My name is DJ. And this is the Mythical True Crime Podcast. Thank you very much for listening tonight and being part of the Mythical True Crime community, hosted by me, DJ. Subscribe to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get your weekly updates. And if you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Subscribing will directly support the show and the work that I'm doing. If you'd like to be a new supporter, consider clicking the link in the description box below. For less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me continue to make great content for listeners everywhere. No commitment. Cancel any time. This has been the Mythical True Crime Podcast. My name is DJ. Good night.